And Isaiah's promise of peace, of course, is the backdrop to Luke's nativity story. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in rags and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom God favors. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In April of 1981, uh, my wife Kathy, then my fiance, graduated from the University of Michigan. In May of 1981, I graduated from Calvin College. In June of 1981, we got married. In August of 1981, we scraped together $500 for a U-Haul truck and moved to New Jersey to start graduate school. And in September, I started classes and we became the proverbial starving students. We weren't exactly burning pages of my sermons like Mimi and Rodolfo in La Boheme, but I do clearly remember, we had no credit card, and I do clearly remember one week when, after paying the tuition and the rent and the electric bill, we had $9 to buy a week's worth of groceries. But thank God for Kraft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> at the time, this is 30 years ago, at the time, four boxes for a dollar. You could eat for a week on $2. Rhonda, that is just a miracle. Thank you, Kraft. So we didn't uh, go out to eat very often during my seminary days, but when we did, we went to this place. It's called the Old Temperance House in Newtown, Pennsylvania. It's a couple miles from where Washington crossed the Delaware in Bucks County, PA, where there's all this wonderful uh, colonial history not far from Philadelphia. And so we went to the Temperance House in Newtown, PA. And the food was okay, but we went for the murals. These wonderful, naive American colonial murals on the walls, just folk art. I don't know, you, you know this artist, Edward Hicks? Edward Hicks is from Newtown, PA. He's probably the second most famous folk artist in American history behind James Whistler, he of the famous mother. Um, ten years ago, Christie sold a painting by Edward Hicks for $6 million, which was the highest price for a piece of folk art in history. I have five Edward Hicks paintings in my living room, but they're cheap knockoffs worth about $100. So Mr. Hicks is the one who painted about 100 different versions of this scene, which came to be known as the Peaceable Kingdom. This is his rendition of the prophecy from Isaiah that I just read. All these wonderful animals living in peace and staring out of the frame with these gigantic innocent eyes. And if you know anything about Mr. Hicks, there is often in his paintings a group of human beings in the background, always in the background. If this happens in Pennsylvania, can you guess who that is? It's William Penn. Yes, good job, Sally. William, 
William Penn, the famous Quaker, who is signing a peace treaty with the Native Americans with whom they'll be going to share their land. Mr. Hicks was born an Episcopalian, but he was orphaned very young. His mother died, and his father was banished from the community for his loyalty to the King of England. And so a Quaker family uh, uh, adopted Mr. Hicks, and he obviously inherited that Quaker Pacific sensibility. I think he gets it just right with the innocence of all creation here. And I think what Mr. Hicks, I'll show you a couple more of these. He, he loves Noah's Ark, as you might guess. There's often a little child leading the animals. It says, a little child shall lead them in love. When man is led and moved by sovereign grace, his grim carnivorous nature then shall cease, and none, not one savage beast shall frown. So I think what Mr. Hicks gets just right is the shalom of this scene, right? You know, of course, that the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is a more three-dimensional and substantial word than the English uh, and French and German and Latin and Greek descendants which derived from shalom. It's um, in, in those languages, in English, German, and French, and so forth, peace is an absence. So the dictionary definition of peace in the Greek language is uh, an interlude in the everlasting state of war. But in the Hebrew language, shalom is not the absence of conflict. Shalom is the presence of life, flourishing, fullness of life, joy, benediction, beauty, whole, unfractured relationships between neighbors, strangers, creation, and the Creator. Isaiah puts it so beautifully, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard with the kid, the lion with the calf and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. It's this exquisite photograph of nature no longer red in tooth and claw. Have you ever seen the musical Rent, Jonathan Larson's retelling of Puccini's La Boheme for 1990's Bohemian New York, one of the characters in Rent says, I forget just why, but one of the characters says, the opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is creation. Yes? Creation. Life. Earth teeming with Pacific life. It's a vision for the end of time, but something we reach for in the midst of time. And so Isaiah's prophecy becomes the backdrop to Luke's telling of the story of Jesus' nativity. When the angels deliver their message to the shepherds out in those fields, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Peace on earth, goodwill to all. So more than the other gospel writers, you probably know this, more than the other gospel writers, Luke anchors the nativity of Jesus to the political and historical context in which the Savior arrived. Luke is the only gospel writer, for instance, who tells us that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, who was probably one of the most, maybe the most powerful and astute sovereigns in human history. He created the first post office and the first police department and the first fire department, which had obviously gone bad 40 years later by the time of Nero, but let that pass for a moment. 
Augustus created a vast highway system which linked the far corners of the empire. He rid the seas of pirates and subsidized grain for the urban poor. Roman architecture became the standard for the world during Augustus's reign. They said that Caesar found Rome brick and left it marble. Also, of course, the Pax Augusti, the Pax Romana, the peace of Augustus, the peace of Rome. He ended the bloody skirmishes between various peoples in the empire that had been prevailing for decades. And so the people of Rome lifted an altar to Caesar and they called his birthday, September 23, the first day of the new year. And on that day they celebrated with songs the birthday of the God marked the beginning of good news through the whole world. Some called him the Savior of the world. Now where have you heard that vocabulary before? It turns out that St. Luke larcened all those titles applying to Augustus and applied them instead to Jesus. A Savior of the world. Peace and goodwill. So, Luke makes Bethlehem, not Rome, the center of the universe. And December 25, not September 23, the most important day of the year. So, what do you think? There we have it. It's our choice. Augustus or Jesus. Who's the Prince of Peace? He was born to a manger and went up to a cross. His first stop was a a stable and his last, a garbage heap called Golgotha. He said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone asks for your coat, give them your shirt too. He embraced the foul leper and hung out with women of questionable repute. And he welcomed into his ev- into his love every lost and lonely soul who came down the pike. Most people thought he simply didn't ask enough questions before he started inviting people over for dinner. And at the end, he was led mute and weak like a lamb to the slaughter. Apparently, he would rather die than kill. The opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is creation. The United Nations estimates that the world could end global, global poverty with about $265 billion a year. Not one starving child, not one illiterate youth, not one human being without clean water across the globe. $265 billion. That's a lot of money. It's also about one-third of the Pentagon's budget or less than 1% of global GDP. Maybe that's too big a concept for most of us who live fairly small lives. Maybe we can think more about becoming princes and princesses of peace in our own small worlds, right? It's hard, isn't it? Even in our homes. One mother was getting sick of her two sons bickering with each other all the time, and after one particular skirmish they were trying to argue their case to her and she said okay slow down one at a time take turns it all started said Jamie it all started when Michael hit me back (laughs) 
if global poverty is too much for you to tackle, how about trying to become a peacemaker in your own little corner of the world? And the bad news is that in the media just now, all of the most prominent people on our televisions and small cranes are so belligerent. They have no interest in ending conflict. All they want is their own way. That's the bad news. The good news is that we can learn a lot from negative example. So I'm going to give you 90 seconds of advice and then I'll quit. Okay, just three quick things and then we'll be done. First, compromise. The right way may not be your way or his way. It may be the middle way. A lot of you are in business. You know this instinctively. This is how business works, right? No deal is cut unless both sides flourish. Second, humility. In his column on Friday in the Times, David Brooks introduced in a provocative concept. He talked about epistemological humility. Another way of saying that is intellectual modesty. Epistemological humility is just a polysyllabic way of saying, conceive it possible that you may be mistaken. Conceive it possible that your antagonist is not an idiot. Maybe he believes that the designated hitter rule is a good thing for baseball. So what? It is unlikely that your idea is God's gift to the world of ideas. It's unlikely. So, compromise, humility, and third, empathy, yes. Try to put yourself in the sandals of another different human being, a starving Yemeni who is being bombarded by American-made weapons just now, or an asylum seeker from Honduras, or a Rohingyan in Myanmar, because that hackneyed, Self-evident platitude is nevertheless true, right? Be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. It's true closer to home as well. Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. This week, in the last two weeks, I've helped three separate sets of parents bury their adult children. These are people who are my age or a little older. I can't think of anything worse than burying your child. But we've all got something, right? If it's not a suffocating mel melancholy at the holidays, it might be addiction to alcohol or something worse, or fraught family relationships, or a comprehensive sense of your own self unworth, or maybe a bully in the eighth grade. Maybe we can remember that even when someone cuts us off in traffic or hurts our feelings with a blunt rebuke at work. Compromise, humility, and empathy. Isaiah's vision painted so winsomely by Mr. Hicks seems an impossible utopia, doesn't it? It's beyond our reach. It's impossibly idealistic. But I love the way Reinhold Niebuhr talks about Jesus. Reinhold Niebuhr calls Jesus the impossible possibility. 
So we know his beautiful life is impossible for us to recapitulate, but that doesn't stop us from trying because the opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is creation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.